Thank you for downloading this podcast from the Traverse Theatre Edinburgh. We now join the theatre's associate director and your host, Hamish Peary. Welcome to this month's Travcast. The Travcast is an interview where I get the opportunity to look into the eyes of a playwright and understand what makes them tick. And this month, I'm very excited to be sitting with a playwright and director who is the founding artist and director of Fire Exit Theatre Company. His work has literally been all around the world, from Sao Paulo to Combinold. His work includes Untitled Love Story, Sub Rosa and White Tea. He has been described as a theatrical maverick with a propensity for fearlessness. David Leddy, welcome. Hello. How are you? I'm good, actually. Brilliant. Thank you so much for being here. It's lovely to be here. Uh, Well, the first thing I'd like to ask you, which is, I do accept a little bit, Saturday supplement, but I'm just going to ask you, what's your worst habit? I think it's probably eating (laughs) too much. Yeah. What sort of things? What's your treat? Anything. Is it comfort food or is yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Comfort food. When I when I'm stressed, I eat a lot, as is very uh, evident in my frame. But if you yeah, could, that's if my, you could that's conjure that's your, what's your, what's your ultimate? If if you think about being stressed when you're eating comfort food, you don't often have a chance to pick, do you? So you end Which up just you know, eating crisps bread or and butter. Really brilliant. Yeah. If I really, if I'm, if I really want comfort, I I get good bread and butter. It's good stupid, bread and butter. It? Yeah, it's not. <laughs> We're talking white or bread. Or champagne. Though. Oh, that's what I want. It's those two things. That's juxtaposition that I like, that, that imagery. Yeah. Yeah, do, you dip, do you dip the bread and butter into the champagne? I'm, I'm going to try later. Please. On your do. recommendation. <laughs> <laughs> Take it straight away. <laughs> the next thing I wanted to ask you was um, because of the variety of your work, mm-hmm. uh, I've always this thought are you the sort of player or theatre maker that is sort of terrorised by the amount of ideas that you have buzzing around or by your ideas, that them sort of being in that head of yours. A little bit. The, pressure I, on uh, you. the thing that I'm most terrorised by is, is the combination of the ideas and the amount of time that you have. I have a, a great fear of time running out. And in my worst moments, I sit and count, you know, probably really, you know, realistically running a company like mine, you can only make one new piece of work a year. And, you know, I'm 40 this year uh, and, and, you know, and I count up how many shows I'll be able to make before I die, which is probably not the most productive thing to do with my time. Um, so I'm, I, I never I never really feel like I'm certainly never have never, ever been terrorized by not having ideas. I've yeah. never had writer's block and I've never ha- not known what to make a show about. But at the same time, I don't feel like I. I'm ever in a position where I go, I've got this idea and it just has to come out of me. I have to, you know, I I never feel sort of under pressure in that way. I always feel like I could, could make it or not make it. You know, I could make a different show, you know, and so I always feel quite pleased that I have lots of things that I could do. And so if one of them doesn't come off, if we don't get funding or if nobody wants to put it on or whatever, then there there haven't been many shows that I've had to drop completely that I would have wanted to do. Um, but so I feel quite lucky in that sense. I don't. I'm never completely overwhelmed by, yeah, the fear. 
<laughs> and were you always able to sort of have an idea that you quite wanted to do, but be able to let it go like that? Because that seems yeah, I quite can't a think of a, of a show that I've ever had in my head where it it, it never got made, and, and I, now I feel kind of bitter that it didn't. Um, no, yeah, I think you know. But partly I think that's to do with if you have got lots of ideas, then you're excited by the new ideas. So if you've pursued something for a while and it hasn't worked out, then it's sort of easier to go, oh, well, bugger it, I'll, you know, because the new one's a much nicer idea anyway. So I'll just, you know, we'll do the one about the dogs. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so when you've got this idea, how often, what's your process? Do you normally have an idea that you've sort of... Do you have ideas specifically for venues or for... It's different. It's different every time. Every show is different. Sometimes it's... Sometimes... It, so a piece like Sub Rosa was made explicitly as a reaction to the Citizens Theatre. Jeremy Raisin took me on a tour of the building and asked me to make a show for those spaces. Um, for other pieces, it's it's the other way around, that it will begin with an, idea, you know, with an intellectual idea. Um, sometimes it's a... It's, a piece of technology that begins it. When I made Susurus, I wanted to make a piece that you listen to on headphones. And I also wanted to make a piece in the Botanic Gardens in Glasgow because it's, you know, has such a special place in the hearts of Glaswegians. Um, and so I put those two things together and began, you know, making that piece from that starting point. Um, but really the thing that, that interested me most was the the intimacy of, that you can get with this, this very, very quiet voice, you know, this very, very quiet voice that's very close to the mic and that you can't do on stage. You know, you can't whisper in people's ears on stage because you would have to physically go up to them and whisper in their ear, which is a very different experience socially for someone you don't know to come and whisper right in your ear than it is to hear it through headphones. So it was about wanting to work with that kind of voice was the starting point for that. So it's different every time. And the process of writing is different every time. I remember when I was a student reading an interview with Pina Bausch and her saying that she feels like with every show that she hasn't learned anything and she's beginning from scratch. And, and I thought, oh, she's just being modest. It's Pina Bausch. Of course she knows what she's doing. And now I think, oh, yeah, that's true, isn't it? I do still, every time, to some degree or another, feel like I have no idea what I'm doing. And do you find that exhilarating or do you find that terrifying? A combination. I'm, I, I, I think if I was genuinely fearful of uh, of any of those things and I wouldn't make the kind of work like that I make I think I would make much more straightforward thing you know with a a sofa and wigs and you know and people you know talking about issues um I think the fact that I want to experiment with form and I want to pick apart a piece of theatre and and try and you know take it to pieces and put it back together in a different order and see what happens I think if I was really fearful I wouldn't want to do that so I just kind of go with it <laughs> and see what happens. You know, it's just a play, right? Just some people watching it. What um, makes you think about that, about the fact that you're always investigating form, you always investigate different ways of working mm -hmm. and looking at theatre, as you say, mm -hmm. in, a, in a new way all the time. So is there, do you find a pressure of originality always whenever you go? Do you find that? From myself, yes. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's, that's something that I want to do. Yeah. I'd, I've never felt a pressure in the sense of other people saying, you know, you know, if I go, uh, kind of the other way around, actually, but what, what's most common for me is that I go to a theatre and say, hey, here's this idea, and they go, we really like what you do, and we've loved your other shows, I just can't imagine this would ever, ever work. And I go, really, trust me, that's what people say about all the shows, and they go, oh, no, I, I don't know, mm. 
And so it's usually the other way around that they like the idea of me uh, and but the reality of having to put themselves behind a show. They go, this one sounds really risky. And I, you know, and I'll say, but you know, can you imagine what it was like when I went to people with Susurus and I say, it's on headphones and you walk around a park and you follow a map and it's about child abuse, but it's kind of warm about child abuse and it's about Shakespeare and opera and bird dissection. Uh, but it's really nice, <laughs> you know. Of course, no one was ever gonna, you know, go. Yeah, that sounds like a safe bet, doesn't it? <laughs> um, so, and that show has now—I don't know—I I think we've done it twenty times in four languages in three continents. Uh, very strangely, for such a weird little show. So, I yeah. Over time, I, I feel more and more like I should not try and talk people into taking the shows before they exist because they often, it seems, can't quite envisage what they will be like until they actually see it and then they go oh okay yeah all right that's quite good which is you know gratifying when it eventually happens <laughs> of course um and again this idea of always working in different forms and reinventing things who were the when you were sort of growing up or at university when it, who were your influences who were the artists that you know, you've mentioned being about i don't know who well i was first uh the first concert i ever went to was my mum took me to the albert hall when i was 12 to see leonard cohen um, which at the time I just kind of went and thought it was cool. And um, and later someone said to me, well, that must have been a, a big influence on you. And I said, well, not really. And they were like, oh, come on, you're a writer and you make this really kind of linguistically dexterous work and it's, you know, and it's quite miserable. <laughs> and, you know, um, I said, oh, God, yeah, it's true. It's true. So um, Leonard Cohen, I think inadvertently, um, Pina Bausch actually was, I, I was shown Pina Bausch at school when I was 12. When we t studied the Rite of Spring in music class when I was 12, uh, we were shown Pina Bausch's version of it on television because it had been on Channel 4. And that stuck with me very much. And I, when I was at university, I wrote my, my dissertation about Pina Bausch. But Neil Bartlett as well. I think of, of all theatre artists, Neil Bartlett would probably be the only one who I would go to Neil Bartlett's shows and go, that's what I want to do. I want to make a show that's like this. Um, in terms of him being a writer and a director, in terms of the very high level of writerly skill that goes into the actual kind of construction of the texts. And at the same time, there's a degree of experimentation with form. Um, and so he... And he's, and he's brilliant. He's absolutely brilliant. Um, and Bjork uh, has been a big influence on me in terms of wanting to sort of take ideas from the avant-garde and... and repackage them in a way that combines something more accessible and easier for for people to get and you kind of put them together in something that sort of resembles a pop song but isn't quite like a pop song and you know but people who like pop songs can listen to it and people who like you know avant-garde blippy bloppy music can listen to it as well it's something that i'm very keen to do um to to break the rules but to keep the traditions yoko ono uh, and made a show that made lots of white tea makes lots of references to to Yoko Ono and her work and other visual artists like Louise Bourgeois um so yeah but mostly very few theater artists really most of the people that I really think of are, are musicians or novelists um or visual artists um yeah I don't know what that says uh, somehow that I don't know if I have a right to say that but somehow that makes sense to me to me, because as you say, yeah. it's, you are about reinventing and we're looking at things yeah. in a new way. So it feels like you're stimulated by yeah. the whole world. Yeah, very much so. And you know, and, and fashion people as well. So, uh, you know, Alexander McQueen or Vivian Westwood. Um, yeah, architecture. Um, someone like 
or Rei Kawakubo also in, in fashion. Um, but, yeah, so many. Miss van der Rohe. <laughs> so travel, because you, your work has travelled so much. Yes. And you have travelled with your work. Mm. I've spent far too much time in economy airline seats, <laughs> which, uh, going back to my bad habit of eating, the, those two do not combine very well. <laughs> But then, I mean, yeah, because then you've, you've, the options for eating are pretty poor, aren't they? No, no, I don't just, I know, I mean the, the size of me in relation to the small uh, seat. Oh, I apologise. Right, yeah. okay. <laughs> yeah. It's a different look. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, how, firstly, how is that, that must, for someone yourself who sort of absorbs the world around you, that must have, can you look at your work and how that's, changed as you've started to be out in the world more making work in different places not just being in the different countries but making work in those different countries yeah i i think um i mean there are particular pieces that have been especially influenced by the travel that i was doing around the time that i made them i mean obviously white tea began with me going on a research trip to tokyo and kyoto and taking all of the photo and video that then got used in the show because we had the audience sat within a sort of huge white paper box wearing white paper kimonos while they watched the show and there were projections on in four directions on all four walls uh, and sound in eight directions but the all of the projections were the sort of core material was shot by me in Tokyo and Kyoto. And so that was really the starting point. Well, what was it really the starting point? Because, you know, I went there because I wanted to make a show about Japan and I was interested in, in Seishonagon's pillar book um, and and the book of tea as well. Um, but so there are things like that that are very direct, but then there are other things that are more indirect. When I wrote Sub Rosa, it's set in Victorian Glasgow, but I went on a uh, writer's retreat in Delhi. And I remember before I went, people going, you're, you're going on a writer's retreat in Delhi? You know, you know, writers' retreats are supposed to be quiet, right? And you know, Delhi's, and I'd be like, "Well, I'm, sh- you know, it's it's an artist village. I'm sure it's not going to be noisy." <laughs> it, lo and behold, <laughs> it was really noisy. Um, but being in India, I realised when I got there and writing about Victorian Glasgow, it was like the closest that you could get to being in Victorian Britain, really, with this kind of this, uh, you know, this very strong master-servant culture that still exists. Uh, it's a period of massive social upheaval that's coming from technological change that we were coming out of the industrial revolution and now India is part of the digital revolution um, and that there's just a sense of the brutality of life being just below the surface it being something that you know if anything goes wrong then you know you're out on the street and you can be dead um, and that um, harshness was very kind of prominent for me in my sort of day-to-day life of going around the city and that certainly came through and that, you know, suppose was very, it's a very bleak piece of work really in terms of what it says about people, it says about the world. It's not, it's not pleasant. <laughs> what, um, with that idea of you always talking about, what do you think is the role of a playwright? Is there one? There doesn't have a lot of people. I think it question. depends on the writer. I think different people work in different ways. For me, I think it's important to, for all of us as artists to try and make people look at the things that they would normally turn away from um, and to think about what they are and, and, and why they happen and what, you know. I'm, I'm, I'm very uncomfortable with what I call guardian backslapping 
theatre that's kind of about us all going to watch and go, oh my God, yeah, it's terrible. Isn't it terrible, that terrible social thing that happened? Yeah. Aren't we great that we went to see a play about it? Should we go to the bar and have a drink? Great. Um, and you kind of, you feel like you've done your bit for the world right. by going and seeing, a, a, you know, a play about whatever. Um, see, I deliberately said whatever there because I think if I choose any theme, someone will think I'm making some dig at the show. It's cool. probably made by someone that I know. Um, but um, so I feel uncomfortable about that, but I do think it's important for us to... Yeah, make people look at the things that we would turn away from. And, and I often feel like I'm not really a, a writer and I'm not really a director. I'm like an amateur psychologist. I'm right. like, I'm like the Hercule Poirot of theatre, um, but kind of crap, you know. Um, and, yeah, that, and that's what I spend most of my time thinking about, really, is about the psychology of why things happen, why, you know, particularly looking at, at ethics and morality. I, th I think the... the theme that runs throughout all of my work is power and the exploration of power and the abuse of power um, and how it works and why we all allow it to work in the way that it works. Um, and so I think a lot about the psychology of that. And then also, of course, as a director, you think a lot about the psychology um, of the room that you're in and how you prime audiences to be able to focus on particular issues. I mean, as a writer as well, but, you know, because you're trying to introduce themes early on so that you can introduce them subtly with psychological priming and then you can bring them back more prominently later and it feels natural for them, you know, particularly that I often am juxtaposing themes which are, you know, don't naturally go together. So with Long Live the Little Knife, you know, we're talking about um, castration and drunkenness and art forgery and, you know, these things that don't at first don't naturally seem to flow together. And of course, there's a, you know, there's an internal logic as to why those things have been put together. But a lot of that, and, and the, I think the bit that I enjoy most about my work is thinking about that kind of psychology and how do you weave all of those things together and, and make people find those connections in their mind between, you know, laissez-faire economics and castrated dogs. <laughs> Which is sort of the, about the craft of writing, right? Mm. Yeah, I think the thing that people are often very surprised about, with you know, because I, my reputation is for you know for messing around with theatre and picking it to pieces and putting it back together. That actually I have a, a, a an enormous love of craft uh, and a great respect for it. I don't throw the pieces together and just kind of go, let's just do some 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 crazy stuff. Um, I have a great love of the tradition of theatre and the and the. Um, yeah, the craft of it. I love learning new pieces of craft. I l and every piece of work that I make, I set myself a sort of educational mission, a sort of autodidactic mission of going, what, what do I think I'm not very good at still? And, th you know, that I could get better. Um, and so for a long time, actually, that was plot, really, that, you know, because I come from this sort of, you know, avant-garde background and, you know, and so you're messing around with form. And I would, there would be a story, and I would kind of go, yeah, yeah, there's a bit of a story, but, you know, whatever, who cares? Um, and when I made Sub Rosa, my mission for myself was that I had to tell a proper yarn. I had to tell a story that, that if all of the lights went out and, and the actors just sat in the dark and spoke, that people would still come out and say that was exciting. And partly that was done out of a little bit of fear, of, you know, because it was a much bigger production than I'd, I'd ever made, and... It was working in a building that I hadn't worked in before, and so I had a slight fear that, you know, if it all went wrong, at least if I serve up a good story, then people will go with that. Um, and so each time I kind of try and find something that I... Yeah, that I'm not very, still not very good at. Right. 
and challenge yourself, yeah. so to speak. And so for Long Live the Little Knife, it, uh, that was uh, mostly to do with pace. Actually, I wanted to experiment with with both the physical pace of how you write individual lines and the speed that, that both in terms of writing and directing, but also the pace at which narrative moves um, and the, the, um, the amount of time and information that's covered in a particular number of words and how you control pace with, you know, that you slow down the pace by focusing on, you know, giving lots of detail about 30 seconds of time and then you speed up the pace by covering 20 years in three sentences. And that, you know, can be very exhilarating. So that was my mission for Long Live the Little Knife. So let's see whether or not I got it right. We'll find out soon, right? As someone that witnessed this early production, I think you've accomplished that. Oh, thank you. <laughs> also, just going back to that thing about plot you were saying there, one of the, there is so much exciting stuff happening in that piece of theatre as a piece of form. Yeah. But what's for me is so thrilling is that the story. Yeah. There's just a really brilliant story there as, as well as everything else. Uh, just we're really so pleased to have it in our theatre. Uh, just before we wrap up, like to ask if you, on an envelope, could write three words to the next generation of playwrights or directors, what would those three words be? Can I have four? Definitely. Don't take it personally. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> David Lady, it's been an absolute joy to spend the last 20 minutes of my life with you. Thank you. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this podcast from the Traverse Theatre Edinburgh. For more information, please log on to www.traverse.co.uk.